there is not a debate anymore about whether humans are causing climate change. There's precious little debate about what the range of the expected climate change will be. There's just a question of what do we do about that? This is the Braveheart Club, a podcast hosted by writer and researcher Rowan Van Voorst, where she, well, that's me, invites people who she finds extraordinary brave. Activists, artists, innovative thinkers, professional badasses. I do this for Happiness Magazine in the Netherlands. Usually, we talk in Dutch, but for this special occasion, we recorded the conversation in English, as I talked with Jonathan Seffron Four, an internationally best-selling author, about his new book. You're probably familiar with some of his other fiction and non-fiction books, like Everything is Illuminated, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and Eating Animals. This time, we talk about his new important work, We Are the Weather, where he explores the central dilemma of our time, climate changes, in a creative, urgent, and personal way. You might hear some background music while we're talking. That's because we met in a hotel lobby in Amsterdam. Let it not distract you. This man has some important lessons to share about how to be brave as a writer, a citizen, a father, and a consumer. Let's go. What I really admire is that you don't necessarily take the popular or easy topics, both in your fiction and your nonfiction. And there's a kind of a balance between not knowing, like you always debate with yourself quite openly, and at the same time you take a stand. So it has something of, I don't know what is the truth, but some things are truer than other things. Um, so thanks for that. Mm. I was, and for being honest about your own struggles and imperfections. I think that's another thing, and it comes quite clearly yeah. out of this book, right? Like you're being very, very open about eating hamburgers, even if you've preached vegetarianism mm -hmm. and how hard and confusing that is for you. Um, so firstly, your first nonfiction book, Eating Animals, was on industrial farming and vegetarianism. And then 10 years later or so, you write this other book um, on a related theme, which really surprised me. What was it that you felt like, I still need to make this step, I'm still not finished with this theme? I didn't actually think I was writing on the same theme. I thought I was writing about climate change. Um, it became, what I wanted to write about was how to convert caring into a, a certain kind of caring, which it takes the form of words, usually, into a caring that matters, like um, changing behavior and action. So from theory to practice, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Not only, th it's not just theory, it's more like there's a confusion that the words were themselves doing something, that to say somebody has to do something was to do something, or that to know, to acknowledge the um, realities of human-caused climate change was itself doing something, when it's really not. Um, there's nothing especially good about agreeing with the scientists unless you agree, un unless you express the agreement through behavior mm. um, so I wanted to think about what is it that I could do what is it that an individual can do I'm not a legislator I'm not you know an elected official um, and it became clear really quickly 
not because I had to uncover some deeply buried secret, but because everybody, everybody who thinks about climate change really does know this, that um, eating a plant-based diet is one of the two most important things one can do and maybe the most important thing one can do, um, along with flying less to save the planet. So then it was a little awkward because I had written a book about eating animals, of course, and I didn't want this to feel like a sequel, and I didn't want it to feel like really what I was doing was writing against the enterprise of eating meat, and this is just a sneaky way to, you know... Make the same message come yeah. true. Yeah, yeah it, it really wasn't. Um, it's funny. It really surprises me that I've written two books about this because I don't feel... I feel sort of torn between two identities, one of which is a little bit reticent about the whole issue, and I don't like the feeling of being preachy about it. I don't like the discomfort of being a vegetarian often, you know, in front of other people. There's a certain amount of, I would say, unnecessary but still very real embarrassment that I feel. Because you're the complex person. Yeah, yeah. and because I risk making other people feel embarrassed or ashamed when I really don't want to. Um, so my stance is often quite measured, sometimes apologetic, often incremental. And that's a, that's a big part of me. And that's the part of me that, that really was in control when I wrote this book, We Are yeah. the Weather, even though it asks for a lot of the reader. There's another part of me. Yeah, because you, you're, I mean, you're subtle, for sure. You're nuanced. You're not only activistic, but there are some paragraphs where you really say, this is, you know, the best you can do for the planet. Mm. You are being blunt and, you know, transparent about that. Yeah. Um, but there's another part of me that I'll sometimes wake up with, or go to, you know, bed with, that... Um, thinks this is really wrong. Like this enterprise is wrong, wrong, wrong. As in the meat, dairy, mm -hmm. industry, like, enterprise. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like using animals for food. Um, and what is unclear now will be perfectly clear in the future and maybe even in the near future. And why am I talking about half steps or half measures or why am I talking about incremental change? When something is categorically wrong, it should be called that so I have these two parts of me and I haven't been able actually to resolve them but what I know for sure um, without any complication is that we need to radically reduce the amount of violence and destruction in the world and animal agriculture is the leading cause of violence and destruction in the world mm -hmm. so we just have to move away from it And whether we do that in an incremental way or in an absolute way, in an abolitionist way, um, you know, I'm not sure of it. it. It seems to me the most effective way to inspire big change quickly is to get people started, you know, and to start not at the end point, which is veganism or vegetarianism, but to start at the beginning, which is You have a meal coming up in a couple of hours. Can you conceive of this meal without animal products? And I've yet to meet the person who can't conceive of the next meal without animal products. And so then it's, okay, now you've, now you've conceived of it. Will you do it? 
Yeah. Will you say that you'll do it? And then you get through that meal, and then there's the next meal, and then there's the next meal. Yeah. So to treat it less like a rhetorical or hypothetical or philosophical exercise and more as this process yeah. of constant questioning and deciding um, with the knowledge that you sometimes will make a different decision, and that's okay. That doesn't undermine anything. It doesn't erase anything. It just gives you, you know, you would then have the opportunity at the next meal to... Yeah correct it I was so much touched by your last chapter um, where you basically have a debate with yourself or two voices in your head or perhaps the two identities that you just um, introduced and one is being or they kind of switch in between roles mm. but one is being more pessimistic we could say and then the other one is more hopeful or decides to that hope is the only thing we have where are you now at this moment in terms of how to evaluate hope or if I'm hopeful at all pessimistic hopeful I feel really hopeful right yeah. now yeah cautiously you know um, and a hope that's informed by the knowledge that this is going to be really really tough and will require all kinds of things that feel only barely within reach now but um, things are changing so quickly and always in one direction you know um, we never learned that animal agriculture is less destructive than we had thought it was. Just as we never learn that animals are less intelligent than we had thought. You know, every study that ever comes out always furthers the idea that animals are more similar to humans in terms of their ability to feel pain or have life experience or even have thoughts than we had previously thought. The consciousness about this issue is always increasing. There's, there are always more vegetarians in the world, more young vegetarians, more people talking and thinking about it. There are always more articles, you know, in newspapers and magazines, more podcasts. Um, the question is, when will the change no longer be by tiny increments and be a tipping point? Yeah. And if you had asked me when I started writing this book, I would have said, I can imagine a world in 10 or 15 years when we eat half as much meat. Now I can imagine that next year. And it seems crazy because that would be a very big change very quickly. But it feels like we're on the brink of a very big and quick change. Yeah, I had the same. In my book, I, I speak about 2030, mm. um, which was a guess in time, but it felt kind of possible. And then when I finished writing the book... It's kind of like, maybe things go faster now. We, we have farmers saying we should transform to plant-based farming. Mm -hmm. We should stop doing what we're doing. Um, the first chapter is called How, Farm How um, Farmers Save the World. Mm -hmm. It's based on interviews with those who already transformed. And this was all the past two years. You know, mm -hmm. Things are going so quickly now. Yeah, it's interesting how that goes. Time is uh, catching up with us. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about when you started writing this book, like the actual moment in time where you decided it's not just a floating idea, I'm actually going to do this, I'm going to sit down and do that. Do you recall that moment? I do, actually. I was in Telluride, Colorado. Um, there was somebody made a documentary out of eating animals, and I went to see it to the premiere. The one that Natalie Portman made. Exactly, yeah. she produced yeah. it. And I was having a conversation with a guy named Evan Williams, who was one of the founders of Twitter. And we were talking about how much 
energy there is, often latent energy, to work on these problems, to work on climate change, to work on meat consumption. And it just wasn't, it was invisible or it was underground. It wasn't, there's a vastly greater desire than was being expressed and how we needed artifacts that would help, you know, works of art, works of nonfiction, music, whatever, that could kind of clarify and congeal this and, and unleash all of this, these values that we all share. Um, yeah, you show very well, I think, in your book, how we need stories and heroes even in order to be able to believe something or be smitten by something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was right around then that I thought I would like to try to go into this again, um, write something that will give people a concrete way to express the concern that they already have. Not try to convince people of the science, although I do correct certain what I think are misunderstandings about the relationship between you know, fossil fuels and animal agriculture and global warming. Um, but it's not really about presenting lots of information and it's not really about asking people to care. It's more an exploration of why caring itself can be difficult and even more how to take that care that we sometimes feel very strongly and sometimes don't feel at all and do something with it, yeah. you know, really change our lives. Well, you take a very unconventional uh, form in the book of bringing across the message because it's not just, it's, it's basically split up in a couple of different parts, right? And so one of the parts may be more informational where you you take a lot less words than I needed to get the important message through. So you work with bullet points, but then there are also chapters where you, you know, share things about your grandmother caring for her or her courageous decision to walk away from a war zone, basically, or a dangerous zone. Um, how did you kind of think of, did those stories come to you or how do you, how do you work in that way? So more than any other book I've written, and I would say by a great distance, this one really was a record of my thought process. So for example, the chapter that's a dialogue, I really was writing the dialogue as I was having the dialogue in my mind. I did go back and edit it, and you know, I'm aware of the fact that I'm a writer, not just like a diarist or journalist. Uh, excuse me, um, somebody who keeps a journal is what I mean, not, not journalism. And Or a social influencer sharing everything through Instagram now. Right. No, I was this. This was what was going on in my head, and I think sometimes the book really feels like that, as it kind of jumps from story to story, anecdote to anecdote, subject to subject. I was experiencing the death of my grandmother while I wrote the book, and so um, I wrote about it usually because that's what I was thinking about or feeling, and the resonances were so strong, you know, to to the subject. Yeah. I was thinking um, to read a part of the book, but I'm now thinking I should read from the uh, English chapter. So can I read a little bit sure. from yours? Because otherwise the English readers won't be able sure. because I have the Dutch version here. It's probably just a part in your debate with yourself, dispute with the soul. How much so you know what would work today? great is we could I could read one and you could read the other. Yeah, but I'll have to sit next to no you. No problem. Otherwise, it gets a little confusing. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so where should we start? Um, Maybe like... Yeah. 
Maybe here. I have it here. Maybe yeah, there. Do okay. It. So it's always driven me crazy that my friend, a fellow writer, and what's more, a passionate environmentalist, has refused to read my book, Eating Animals. It upsets me because he's a sensitive thinker who cares and writes about the preservation of nature. If he is unwilling even to learn about the connection between eating and the environment, what hope is there for hundreds of millions of people to alter their lifelong habits? Why won't he read it? He told me he's afraid to read the book because he knows that it will re require him to make a change he can't make. Congratulations. You're better than your friend. Pointing out his shortcomings must have soothed your guilt about your own. And while we're on the subject of your narcissism, why are you making your patheticness the subject here? I was using his shortcomings to illustrate my own. If I argue against eating animal products while continuing to eat them myself, well, then I'm a massive hypocrite. Why is that important to say? No one wants to be a hypocrite. So be perfect instead. Don't do that. What? Be glib about the real pain involved in trying to do the right thing. Don't do that. What? Make your emotions more urgent than the planet's destruction. Well, our emotions and lack of emotions are destroying the planet. Without a doubt. You don't want to give up your burgers, your drives to the grocery store and flights to Europe, your cheap electricity. You don't want to make the dinner party awkward or have anyone think you're a drag or worse, an asshole. You don't do something because you just don't feel like it. But as ever, you have your comfort to protect so you convince yourself that knowing about it, writing a book about it, is doing something. That would be enough. And funnily enough, this was actually exactly the part that I had oh, yeah? in mind. Yeah, mm. it says, but it's a different page number. Ah, that was good enough. That was nice. Good. <laughs> is there any part in your writing, I don't know how that worked for you with this book, where you were insecure about the message or about how the book would work or do you have any faces of self-doubt that you go through yeah the whole book i mean the book is a record of self-doubt you know am i a hypocrite do i believe this um who am i to tell anybody else this stuff will other people care do i care you know that is the point of the book is how to manage doubt um in this moment when we need resolve. Would you say then that writing and being so open about the self-doubt, is that your way of dealing with, with that insecurity? It is. I hope that it's not always my way. It's nice to imagine that I will reach some point of peace, you know, inner peace, peace with my own instincts and opinions, peace with peace between my feelings and my actions but honestly i doubt that <laughs> i doubt that that's going to come and in a, in a way acknowledging that it might not come is itself a huge relief do you think related um is first question is courage something that we need in order to stay hopeful or to act in a way that matches our hopefulness I think so, but it's a different kind of courage than we normally imagine. Tell me about that. I think we need to stop being afraid of being hypocrites. You know, we need to stop being afraid of being incomplete. Because so many people, I would even say everybody, um, wants to save the planet. You know, who, who is the person who doesn't? But 
when we face the reality, when most of us face the reality, I should say, that we just can't give up planes, that we can't give up cars, that we can't give up all of the foods that we should give up, what's left? You know, until recently, there hasn't been any space for um, efforts. There's only been completeness or incompleteness. Either you give up flying altogether or you just never consider giving up any flying at all. Either you're a vegan or you're a meat eater. And I hope what we're moving toward is a world in which people are brave enough to try, knowing that they're going to fail as they try, and that instead of being ashamed of the moments when we don't live up to our absolute highest standards, and nobody lives up to his or her highest standards, instead of being ashamed of that, we feel proud of the efforts that we've made. But that really takes bravery. Is that something that you're trying to teach your kids? It is. It's something I'm trying to learn myself. You know, I wrote in this book about times when I've eaten meat in the last five years. It was very, very hard to write that. It was so embarrassing, so shameful, you know. And I erased it many times, and then I rewrote it, and I erased it. And I would have felt bigger, um, and I would have probably looked better if I had just not bothered to mention that. But it would have been dishonest. And I feel like we're all in this same predicament, and we might as well be in it together. The predicament of having to struggle to do what's right. Yeah, at the same time, I, I agree, and I can sense how hard it must have been. But I also think you make the book very accessible to a lot of people who feel guilty about making what they consider mistakes, right? About not being the perfect vegan or vegetarian. Uh, so I think in a sense, you're making it easier for a lot of your readers to kind of absorb the message than if you were the perfect kind of activist writer who only eats plants. I hope so. It was a relief to me, you know, like that I don't have to be this perfect person that I'm not. You know, I don't have to pretend. It allowed me actually to feel... You know, there's a part in the book where, in that debate section, where one of the voices says, like, why is it still so hard? You know, why, why is this so hard for me, despite caring as much as I do and having thought about it? To not eat animal products. Yeah. yeah. And the other voice asks, well, how often have you done it? And they realize that, you know, I've, I've gotten it right 998 times out of 1,000 or something like that. Yeah. And he says, so maybe the question is, why is it so easy for you? You know, and we need to take the emphasis off of our shortcomings, yeah. off of our mistakes, especially when most of us really are getting it right so often, you yeah. know. So, um, but it's a different way of looking at it. And that to me is, is our challenge with climate change, is not finding new information or finding new values, but finding new ways of looking at it. So you make it very explicit that self-criticism can really hinder progress in that sense, right? Because it kind of blocks people, or it can block people. There's a balance. Like, we can't beat ourselves up, but we also can't let ourselves off the hook, you know? I think it's really important that we can't beat ourselves up over what our limits are, but we should beat ourselves up for not striving to reach our limits, mm. you know? So if someone says to me, 
I hear what you're saying. This message makes sense. I completely agree. Here's my reality. My reality is maybe because of where I'm from, maybe because of my culture, maybe because I'm weak for whatever reason, I can only give up meat on the weekends, two days a week. I would say, thank you for being honest with me. Just make sure you give up meat on the weekends. You know, don't let that acknowledgement of one's like limits get you off the hook for everything. No. Like we have to believe each other when we state what our limits are. We have to respect that you really mean it when you say this is as far as I can go. But at the same time, we have to go as far as we say we can go. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest insight that you learned while writing this book? Is that this one or was there another one? I think the biggest insight was that um, we want to s save the planet. It might sound silly, but you know I've had a lot of conversations now with 80-year-olds and with 8-year-olds, with religious people, with secular people, with vegans, with animal farmers, with environmental activists, and with far-right-wing um, public intellectuals. I've yet to meet the person who um, varies in his or her desire to save the planet. There are definitely some disagreements, and they matter, but they're so much smaller than we are giving them credit for being. This is not a polarizing issue. It's not a politicized. It is a, people are casting it as a politicized issue, and they're turning it into a politicized issue, but it's not an inherently divisive issue. There is not a debate anymore about whether humans are causing climate change. There's precious little debate about what the range of the expected climate change will be. There's just a question of what do we do about that? And um, if somebody says to me, I believe in human-caused climate change, um, I think we need to wait 15 more years, see what's going to happen, and then respond, I would not say you're an idiot. I would not say you're ignorant. I would not say you're evil. I would say we agree that this is happening. We agree that we don't know what is about to come. Here's why I disagree with you about what we should do and when we should do it. And I would try to disagree in a way that revealed our shared instincts. So I might say something like, let's imagine you got a cancer diagnosis and you went to a doctor And he said, you know, I'm looking at your charts. I can't exactly pinpoint where the cancer is, and I couldn't tell you exactly how it's going to grow. But my expert opinion is that you should go through a round of chemo. I would probably go to a second doctor and get an opinion, and maybe a third doctor. There is a number of doctors after which I would say, I'm going to do what they're telling me, even if there are some disagreements in their prognoses, even if none of them are exactly certain. I would say... Experts are experts. There are reasons we go to doctors and we don't treat ourselves. And I'm going to take what seems like the prudent and safe course of action. Yeah. Scientists tell us what the prudent and safe course of action is. Yeah, so I'm guessing that you're now referring to the 97% yeah. of the scientists that agree that climate changes are human-induced. But there's also the 3%, including the president of the U.S. and a certain politician, and several politicians here in the Netherlands, that overtly still doubt 
you know, the fact that humans do have an influence on the climate. How do people respond to that? Do you just ignore that and stick with the what we may call facts, or do we protest it? What is necessary, you think? I think we have spent way too much time and energy with concerned about those people. Trump is probably the most powerful person in the world. As it turns out, the most powerful people in the world are not going to solve this problem, or at least not anytime soon. I campaigned for Hillary. I, of course, voted for Hillary. I desperately wanted Hillary to be president. In terms of the environment, it's very possibly better that Trump is president. You know, Hillary would have kept us in the Paris Climate Accords, and we wouldn't have met the goals, just as the Netherlands are not going to meet the goals, just as none of the signatories, with the exception of maybe two or three, will meet the goals. Trump has given birth to an entirely different kind of environmentalism in America. The problem is it's been directed back at him, you know. With so a counter, a counter movement. Protests and arguments. And instead, we should direct the energy toward the real problem, which is... Using all that energy and then using it for the real problem. Which is us, huh. you know, to change our lives, to take our anger, our disappointment, our concern, and go to the mirror with it and and begin with the change that is within our control. Hmm. Yeah, that can be that can be bravery in itself, I guess, just, you know, turning the gaze. Absolutely. It's easy to blame other people. You know, and those other people are often deserving of blame, don't get me wrong. Um, but uh, it's a waste of energy. Hmm. I mean, what do you think Trump is going to be convinced? There's no chance. Uh, but we can convince each other and we can convince ourselves that there's a better path. Well, and that links up to what you're saying, right? Like the, the real enemy here is not anything else than us us making it hard for ourselves, us debating ourselves, us doubting ourselves. I mean, there are other enemies, but most of them are actually responsive to us yeah. more than we think. Yeah. You know, the corporations are responsive to us. Farmers are responsive to us. Um, Bolsonaro is responsive to us, and ultimately Trump is responsive to us as well. Just as a last question, because I think um, we have to round this up, unfortunately, but um, I ask this to all of my guests here in the podcast. What is courage for you? How would you define it? Um, I think courage is acting on what you know to be right. And I don't only mean that in ethical situations. Um, I mean, if you are in, feel that you're in the wrong relationship, if you feel that you're in the wrong body, if you feel that you're in the wrong country, if you feel that you are um, practicing the wrong habits, if you feel that you have pursued the wrong professional life, um, it's extraordinarily difficult to admit that you know, to oneself and to others especially when the choice um, isn't a popular one. And I really revere people who are able to acknowledge that they're not living um, their lives. That was beautiful.